You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Dolver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael Lapod Pina, who is officially at Sports Illustrated this week. Michael, I read your debut column, and I've got to say, for years I've heard people say they don't trust or they don't like or they disrespect the media, and I didn't get it. And now, Michael, one day in <laughs> to your Sports Illustrated tenure, Stephen Curry has a magical... 62-point performance, the best night that the Golden State Warriors fans have had since sometime in in 2019, and you're going to turn right back around the very next day, the morning after, and try to trade Steph Curry away from the Warriors. Michael, what's wrong with you, man? Are you demented? Is everything okay? Did did, uh, New Year's Eve and the resolutions and, and Christmas holiday and all that just not go very well for you, and you're trying to inflict pain, or what's going on, Michael? So in fairness to myself, uh, I started working on that column about three weeks ago, and everything was looking good. You know, they don't extend stuff. My narrative is still uh, alive and surviving. And then, you know, they're struggling from the jump. And I was like, this is really going to work out well for me. And then like the day, you know, the night before we publish, he just goes absolutely bananas and does things that, I mean, it was unprecedented even for him, which lets you know that it was truly remarkable and magical. And I really enjoyed watching it on television. Um, but to, yeah, I guess like to answer your question, I don't, I don't think I'm demented. No, but I'm, well, I'm glad that you read the piece. Are, are you the reason why everyone hates the media? Are you going to answer that accusation? Because I mean, come on, Michael. Probably. Yeah, no, probably. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because I actually think Steph going off, uh, well, first of all, it's better for your column visibility, so you'll lean right into it. But second of all, I think it kind of proves your point a little bit about the the awkward marriage between player and team around him. And I think part of the deal for me, you know, coming away from watching him score 62, I just kept thinking back to all the amazing games that we never got to see him finish, right? Where he'd have like 35 at halftime or 40 by the end of three. And then he would just sit out the entire fourth quarter because they, you know, they're a super team. They're running everybody off the court. He he was able to just kind of rest those knees and not play down the stretch. And there were so many moments from like 2015 to 2018 where who knows how many points Steph could have had, who knows how many three-pointers he could have made had he been allowed to kind of go for it. And I remember some Golden State Warriors fans were getting so upset during those moments, Michael. They were like, screw sportsmanship. I don't care if we're up 20. We're holding Steph (laughs) back from like making all these records, so let's see what it looks like if you just turn him loose. And now he's got himself on a team here where they need absolutely everything that Steph Curry can muster because you look around him and there's just not a ton of help right now. As you noted in your column, um, coming into that game, they were dead last in uh, you know point differential. Um, also heading into that game, I believe they were last in offense, second last in mm-hmm. defense, if I'm not mistaken. And so this is a situation where Steph was playing decent prior to that game and they were just getting smoked and, and their wins were really soft against Chicago and Detroit. So you're kind of in this situation of like, wow, this could get pretty dark for Golden State. And and I still do uh, you know worry about them quite a bit. 
But what you saw from Steph is, the, you know, the version that we didn't get when he was playing for a super team. It was like the guy who's hunting points late in the game. I mean, the last couple of three-pointers, completely unnecessary, and I loved it. The game was in hand. He's coming down and bombing from like 30 feet. Then on the very next possession in transition, he's kind of like riding in Draymond's wake like Draymond is a boat and he's a water skier. And then he just sets up beautifully for this like stop and pop leaning three-pointer, you know, just one final down dagger to end Portland's night in a miserable fashion for them and I mean it's just a ruthless cutthroat version of Steph Curry uh, I mean just elite shot making unbelievably entertaining um, one of the most fun performances we've seen in the last couple of years and so I think from that standpoint uh, it, it did underscore your point though which is Golden State can't get 62 points from Steph Curry every night. If that's what it kind of takes for them to look like the old, their old selves, that's kind of a problem. And when he's merely good, in other words, when he's only averaging or he's only scoring, say, 32 points a night, uh, it's a chance that they lose the minutes he's off the court by so much that they wind up losing that whole game, which has happened to them a couple times already this year. So I guess that's why you were looking towards the future, right? You're starting to see um, the situation around Steph Curry kind of changing in some pretty meaningful ways. Yeah, I mean, real quick, like this is last night's Steph Curry is what I thought Steph would be last season if he didn't break his hand. I picked him to win MVP. I thought he was just going to go full on lava pit for the entire year. And to your point, like the team needed him to shoot that much and to attack the basket and get to the free throw line and set everybody else up and play more minutes. Um, so I, you know, I thought he was going to lead the league in scoring. I thought he was going to win his third MVP. Obviously he got hurt and things kind of were derailed from there, but like heading into this season, one of the reasons why I chose Golden State as my number one league pass team in our league pass rankings was Steph. And I wanted to see, I didn't think he would have 62 within the first two weeks of the season, but this, these are the types of performances that I kind of anticipated happening and like because his team needs them to to happen um which has not been the case for for years i mean just looking at how much institutional know-how and 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 talent that this team has lost which i wrote in my column over the past few years it's like it's unprecedented so steph really needs to step up he's 32 years old he turns 33 in a couple months uh, this won't last forever, and this team is extremely expensive with luxury tax payments that are in the nine figures for this year and next year. Well, Michael, can um, I stop you right there? Isn't it incredible that they had the worst point differential in the league and they had the highest payroll in the league? Like, that takes a lot of work. That's not easy to do. I mean, that's different. No, <laughs> no. And if you look at who was in second, like, in the luxury tax payment this season, it's Brooklyn. And Brooklyn is a contender, and Brooklyn can justify paying that much money. But it's just like... You know, a lot of it was because of, or I guess all of it almost was because of Clay Thompson's injury, which just, uh, you know, was not anticipated by anybody. And then you kind of panic and you sign Kelly Oubre, who I, I think he made his second three-pointer of the season last night, which was wonderful he, to he's see. He's two for 30 right now on the season yeah, yes. three-pointers. And, and I remember I wrote this in my notebook because it was so remarkable, but when he made that three, I believe he blew a kiss to the Portland Trailblazers bench, which I just, I, I love. I mean, it's like having that much, like that energy right there is just exactly what I need in 2021 and going forward. No, it's perfect because he won't hit his third until Valentine's Day. So the kiss thing is, <laughs> is excellent. Can I, let's let's boil this conversation in. Let's start with Steph Curry, all right? Because okay. he's been saying I'm I'm feeling all of this criticism, uh, you know, from the social media, and I think there's been a couple of lines of critique. First of all, 
can he quote-unquote carry a bad team? In other words, put a team on his back, do the lava pit stuff that you're describing, and lead a lesser cast of characters to the playoffs or a first-round win or whatever it might be, right? What does he look like without the super team? I think that's number one. I think number two, there was a comment by Damian Lillard saying essentially that uh, Steph Curry's having a harder time getting open looks this year because he's facing so much extra defensive attention. I think Portland even threw kind of like a box and one at him. Other teams have been throwing just crazy amounts of attention as soon as he's coming across half court. That's not necessarily something new, but teams are doing it even more shamelessly because guys like Oubre aren't going to make you pay. Wiggins was struggling to make you pay in the first couple games, and Draymond wasn't out there as sort of like a facilitator and a passer to move the ball. So it was just very easy to kind of blitz uh, Steph Curry. And then I think um, you know the other criticism that uh, people would have is just, okay, well, at some point, if the offense isn't working and these other guys aren't shooting, why isn't Steph just going into sort of like hero mode? In other words, I'm just going to take over. I'm not going to worry so much about the off-ball offense stuff that's been kind of Golden State's uh, bread and butter for years. I'm just going to go solo and and save this thing. And and that's kind of what happened in the 62-point game, but not really. Like, I don't view that as a ball hockey performance from Steph, right? He just got super hot. I mean, if you can score 62 points within the flow of a game somewhat, it would look more like Steph scoring 62 as opposed to, say, like a guy like Carmelo or Kobe or someone else who's scoring 62 points. And so um, those were sort of the, the lines of criticisms that he was getting here the last week. And clearly he took them personally. I mean, he even said after the game, you know, I felt like the Michael Jordan meme, you know, I took that personally from the last dance. I mean, he's saying like, you know, these comments are are fueling him a little bit. Are there is there any truth to any of these attacks on uh, Curry or however you want to put it? I mean, do you feel like he has something to prove this year? Were any of those things, you know, grounded in fact, but maybe just taken too far on social media? Like, where do you stand in terms of like the Steph criticism vortex right now because there are there are some people who will say he's beyond reproach he's established himself as who he is you know a a two-time mvp a three-time champion led a 73 win season like he cannot a negative word can't be said about him and i'm more or less in that category uh but you know i'm curious your take i think like both sides have a point generally right now the criticism is really dumb like the it's just common denominator really bottom of the barrel stuff like if he struggles for two straight games and they get blown out you know uh on you know the first two games of the season were nationally televised and you know golden state was absolutely blown off the floor by milwaukee and brooklyn and then on Friday night before uh, the 62-point game against Portland, he had uh, a, an okay performance individually, but Golden State was blown out. Um, so, like, I think that criticism is dumb right now. I don't think he has anything to prove, per se. But if you are one of the best players in the league, which he is, and you're healthy, which he is, you should be able to lift your team to the playoffs. That's kind of just how I feel about it. And I know the Western Conference is ridiculous, but I feel like that's a reasonable threshold to put on someone. And I know that he is super unique, and there's never been anyone like him in terms of the shots that he takes and is able to take and just his body type and what type of grind it would require to drag a a lesser supporting cast into the postseason in such a competitive conference. But, like, you know, um, 
any other player who's dominated as he has and accomplished all that he did would be held to the same standard. Like at the end of the day, like if James Harden's team was getting blown out and James Harden was playing okay, but not exceptional basketball, he would be criticized. Same for LeBron, same for KD, same for Kawhi, who we're going to criticize later. Uh, So, I mean, like you can criticize him, but just don't go overboard. And then to the people who say he's beyond reproach, he's a human being and he should be criticized when he deserves it. Yeah, I think that, you know, with this group, if Clay was out there and healthy, I would say they would face that playoff mandate. If you've got Clay's replacement shooting 6% on three-pointers sure. and, and Wiggins <laughs> looking really clueless and you're starting a rookie center defensively, and when Draymond's out, do they have a single-plus defender on the entire roster? You know, th- that starts to be the kind of situation where Clay's contract is tying one hand behind your back. Kelly Oubre's, you know, just presence is tying your other hand behind your back. And at some point, it's like, I'm not going to hold it against Steph if he can't carry this particular group into the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Usually, I'm pretty demanding. And, uh, you know, I, I expect a lot from a team's best players. And that when it becomes time to hand out criticism, I tend to look there first. You know, Giannis, it started with him in the playoffs. You know, he just did not play his best. The Bucks go out. He has to bear a lot of the responsibility. Kawhi Leonard, same deal you know, for the the Clippers in last year's playoffs. That's where I wanted to start the conversation. A lot of other people wanted to talk about playoff P, Paul George and and Doc Rivers and whatever else it might be. I think the best player always needs to have that uh, kind of magnifying glass approach. But with Steph, like he could be sensational. I mean, I think that he could actually average 40 points a game this season and they still don't reach the playoffs. I think that would be possible. I'm not predicting that, but I think that's possible given what he's got to work with on this particular roster. So I think I'm in almost give him a full pass for this season mode. Um, At the same time, it matters, uh, I guess, his spirit and how he plays and is he able to make an impact and is he able to show you sort of glimmers of hope for the future, right? And I think part of the problem in the first two weeks was there hadn't been a lot of that. Even when he's scoring 30-something points, it just felt empty. You know, the whole the whole experience was just dreary. Guys were having a hard time, and, and they just couldn't get their spirit right. A lot of frustration in terms of shot selection from his teammates, uh, expressed both by Curry and Coach Steve Kerr. And the whole thing is just starting to, you know, kind of go down the, the drain a little bit, and it wasn't feeling great. So for him to be this emotional spark here with 62 points, I think that's what that team needed. And we'll see if they can kind of build on that going forward. So I don't think he has anything to prove. I think the criticism that was coming out here was, you know, just ridiculous. And I'm glad that he was able to kind of shut it up with that type of a performance. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, he does face broader expectations, which is what I think you get into your column on SI which is, hey, he's 32 years old. He's capable of scoring 62 points in a game. Um, they're you know, in salary cap hell right now. It's going to be very difficult for them to reload the roster unless Weissman turns into an all-star. Like you know, Within a year, Draymond can you know, raise his game back to another level that we necess- haven't necessarily seen since 2019, and Clay comes back 100%. Maybe Steph's in a case where you're just not getting to see the you know him chase a championship again and i think that would be sad right i mean that's not mm-hmm. something that anybody wants so that's sort of where you're going with your column right yeah 100% i mean i, I just it's not a likely scenario at all that the golden state warriors will will ever trade steph or that steph will leave in free agency i just i can't really see that in reality but i think that it could be 
like a good thing for both sides and the fans will hate that because he's the most beloved player you know he's last of a dying breed a guy who's spent his entire career with the same organization who has publicly stated that that's what he wants to do he wants to retire with the golden state warriors but there's a reason why so few players in this modern era do that it's just it's a really difficult thing to do if you want to continuously win and you know compete at a high level and make the money that you deserve. So it's it's just a really tricky spot right now, and I think it's a fascinating one as well. But Ben, I have one quick question for you uh, going back to what you said about Steph maybe not being able to lift this particular group to the playoffs. Um, are there any players in the league, if you swapped Steph for them, that you think could drag this team to the playoffs like you would you would be very confident that they would make the playoffs if say LeBron was on them instead of Sefer or Harden or Kawhi like is there anyone in the Le- league LeBron I think that's it and even then like <laughs> look if, if LeBron's kicking to Oubre and he's shooting six percent that's not going well you know like and that's that's yeah. kind of the thing Steph is almost the right leader for this group because he's you know, patient and kind beyond like, you know, any normal human's abilities to be patient and kind. Imagine being able to score 62 points and watching some of your teammates on the Golden State Warriors and the mistakes that they're making. It drives me crazy watching from home. I can't imagine operating on the level that Steph Curry operated on, especially from a team standpoint in 2017. And to be faced with this new reality three years later, I have no idea how he's adjusting. And it's amazing that he's not upset and there's nothing about, oh, I want to get out or I don't like this group and he's not going the Harden route. I mean, it's not surprising at all because that's never been who Steph is. But I do mm-hmm. think it just shows you not only his loyalty, but just you know his his buy-in to that group. It's uh, It's pretty fascinating. And so on that point, I want to kind of push back to what you're saying. What could this future look like? Is Steph destined to become like a super Dirk, right? Where Mm. Dallas had five, six, seven years there that they didn't really matter in the NBA's standings, you know, in the the playoff race. And they were just riding, you know, Dirk Nowitzki's, uh, you know, golden years uh, right right straight to the end similar a little bit to Kobe Bryant in LA the last three or four years they were not really competitive but the fans weren't really upset about that necessarily I mean there was some grumbling but they were still glad they could watch Kobe every single night is it the end of the world if the Warriors don't compete for a title over the next five years would they be happier and just you know more content with their with their place in the league if they got to watch Steph Curry do what he did last night every once in a while maybe they're able to win a playoff series if things break right you know is it a situation where they just need to change their expectations and just acknowledge hey look you know a lot of things broke against us we handed out a lot of big contracts it's going to be difficult for us to dig out of that but as long as we're competitive and as long as you get to cheer for number 30 who really cares? Could you see a super Dirk era in Golden State emerging where the fan base is happy enough, the ownership is happy enough, they're selling tons of jerseys, he gets to be an icon so he stays happy enough, and they maybe can retool things and, and get a little bit more competitive two years down the road, and we don't need to worry about your crazy trade scenarios, Michael? What do you think? <laughs> I think that would be really sad. Uh, you know, the Dallas Mavericks have not won a playoff series since Dirk since 2011 when they won that title and um like that it, it, like the latter years of Dirk's career were just a bummer i mean there were some 50 i want to say there were some 50 win teams in there sprinkled here and there like they were they were competitive sure well were, michael like, i agree with you but would you say it was a bummer for us you know impartial outsiders who you know would just rather see him play for something meaningful 
Did it seem mm-hmm. like a bummer to Dirk, to Mark Cuban, or the fan base? Because ultimately, those are the three parties who kind of matter here, right? And I think Mark Cuban viewed it in his best interest, right? I think Dirk seemed super happy to be an icon down there. And the fan base, maybe they got a little bit frustrated with it, but they got saved and Luca fell in their laps. So that, that one's a little bit tricky to replicate. I'm not sure Golden State's going to be able to just find a Luca out there to take the reins from Steph. But do you know what I mean? Like, it, maybe it's a bummer for us outsiders, but the insiders are okay with it. I think internally, Dirk was very frustrated. I think that if you look at how the organization was operating, like they were trying to get better. They were, you know, there was the DeAndre Jordan fiasco. There was other, there were other free agents that they targeted and they couldn't get. And they just kind of like never recovered from letting Tyson Chandler go because of CBA shenanigans after the championship and after the lockout. Um, But no, I think like the way I view this, it would be really sad for Steph it would be sad for the Warriors. And, you know, looking at it from the point of view of both Steph and Joe Lacob, like Joe Lacob is someone who has on the record in a magazine feature said that his organization was light years ahead of everybody else. I just have a really hard time thinking he would be content staring at three banners in his new arena. And even if they were sellout games, like, knowing that there was no shot at winning the championship every year that just does not seem like how that guy is mentally wired nor should anyone who owns an nba team so i just i, I like the reason why i wrote the piece is just because i can't imagine them like sitting on their hands and just kind of being satisfied with inertia like i i just think that when you believe you are on the cutting edge as an organization and when you're trying to stay ahead of the curve constantly, that requires really difficult decisions. And Joe Lacob strikes me as someone who is more than comfortable making really difficult decisions. No, I'm with you on that part. I mean, there always comes a time where you just you know, tell yourself, look, I can't live like this anymore. Something's got to change, right? (laughs) And I actually think that that could come here this season for Golden State. I'm still kind of on the pessimistic side. Like, I don't really trust Steph Curry's help. I'm not sure if you can massage these parts into a decent offense, and I don't think they've got enough on defense to kind of slow people down, right? So when other teams start to crank up their defensive intensity as we get a month into the season, I worry Golden State's going to get left behind, right? So I could easily see a scenario where Joe Lacob wants to push some bu- push some buttons, uh, you know, this season. Whether it's you know dramatic trades or maybe even a coaching change down the road or something along those lines. But I do think the salary part is kind of what's got him hamstrung, right? I mean, he's he's kind of tied up in knots, you know, with Wiggins's contract and and Clay Thompson's contract and Draymond's contract. It's going to make it difficult for him to do anything of of major consequence. Those draft picks they've got do help, so that could uh, that could get them somewhere, but. Uh, I'm just worried that they're going to be sort of uh, in a situation where let's say it's not completely depressing and it's just merely meh, where their options are going to be like some crazy overhaul or just like roll the dice and try to be meh again, right? And I could just see them kind of saying, well, look, you know, Steph gets us everything that we want at the box office. He's the identity Mm -hmm. of the Warriors fans. He's our Kobe. We're going to treat him that way. And, uh, you know, just go forward and try to give him a chance. And maybe that would be sad for us outsiders because that means we don't get to talk about Steph in, in May and June. But I could see that, you know, the internal stakeholders not thinking that's the end of the world. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, 
a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. All right, Michael, let's shift gears to another one of your favorites, um, Jason Tatum. He finally hit a big shot last night. must have felt great for you. Um, big time game winner. Uh, almost made Blake Griffin touch the hardwood there at the end. Maybe he did touch the hardwood there on the on that game winner uh, to mm-hmm. narrowly avoid a, season, a series sweep by the Detroit Pistons. I'm sure that had you shaking in your bo- uh, boots and quivering, Michael. Um, let me ask you this first off. Was it? Did it feel good that the ball was in Tatum's hands rather than Marcus Smart's hands for once in a big moment? I mean, it seemed like every single playoff game it was Marcus bombing in those kinds of situations, and Tatum was just on the far side of the court, you know, not really uh, participating in the play, just acting as a bystander. So was it nice they finally fed the big dog for the big shot? Sure. I mean, to quickly, uh, just a quick correction. I mean, Tatum, this was his second game winner in like five games. So he is just remarkable. No, we don't count the the first. We don't count the first one. Come on, Michael. The bank. (laughs) Okay, my mistake. Come on. He He didn't mean to bank it in. You don't get to count that. That's not going on his career highlight film. Come on. When you're as skilled as Tatum, I mean, the the ridiculous looks normal is how I'll put it. Like he, that was it, it, obviously an intentional shot by him. But go, like you know, to answer your question, um, yeah, it was great to see the ball in his hands. It was great to see Detroit do whatever they were trying to do defensively. Uh, you know, losing two in a row to the Pistons would have been a pretty big bummer. But personally, I I'm not worked up at all about how the Celtics look. They don't look how I think I expected right now, but the pieces that are excelling and the pieces that are struggling make sense to me and put the team on a pretty good trajectory. So like I I can't get too worked up even though, you know, dropping a game to the Pistons is not what you want to (laughs) see, the winless Pistons at the time. And then you know, getting into crunch time against them again on Sunday afternoon and watching Mason Plumley get an ISO with like a tie ball game or down one, one possession ball game with 10 seconds to go. Like, it's just, it was really gross, I guess. But, uh, you know, the, the good guys won. Yeah, I would, I would just ask you, you know, after such a tense and fiercely fought series, if you're trying to build a franchise, would you rather build around Tatum or Jeremy Grant? I mean, where, <laughs> which direction are you going? 
Well, Tatum just because he's younger. I mean, you get the age factor. Is higher really upside. Huge there. Yeah, higher exactly. upside. Yeah. Great call. Yeah. Okay, I'm. Uh, I'm just joking. I think that there's maybe some slight cause for concern there in Boston. I've not been impressed at all with what they've been doing. And we've got a couple of questions coming in from around the world about it. So I'm going to throw them to you, Michael, and you tell me. Uh, I guess you know you you provide your patented green beer defense <laughs> here. John in Southern Bohemia writes, why didn't Boston win both of these games against Detroit handily? Aren't we worried about Boston yet? Can it all really come down to missing Kemba Walker against Detroit? And then Pavel asks, this would have been a crazy thing to say last year, but would you rather have Kemba with the years of money left on his contract or Terry Rozier on his deal? Knowing what we know now, would the Celtics do that deal again instead of just re-signing Terry Rozier? There is no question that Kemba is the far better player with his availability in question and $40 million per year. He could end up being a crutch to the Celtics for the next few years of contention. So he's basically saying, look, Terry Rozier has put up some kind of crazy numbers down there in Charlotte. Yes, you know his his contract looked insane one of the worst deals in the entire league last year (laughs) but at least he's out there playing Kemba's this big time question mark he's on a huge number probably pretty difficult to trade Kemba at this point I mean and and you're seeing what Kyrie's doing in Brooklyn Michael did Boston kind of screw up this point guard shuffle I mean did they come out on the short end of the stick what do you think man uh no I I I I think that this is an indeed a, a crazy question. Uh, Kemba is only 30. The knee is an obvious concern. Like, I'm not going to quibble there, especially for Celtics fans who remember what 2009 was like with Kevin Garnett. But, like, the fact that no specialists recommended surgery for Kemba is a really good sign. I mean, you know, looking at Terry Rogier, who I do like, I think he's played way above his head so far um, in a role that he would have never had in Boston. And so, you know, right now he's shooting 50% on above the break threes. That's just obviously completely wild and unsustainable. Um, I think that if you were to have him instead of Kemba, your ceiling is lower. And right now you consider yourself a championship contender and a team that can vie for the title this season and next season and going forward. Um, Obviously, like, you know, Kemba's health, again, is a it's a question mark currently. Um, I think that you just have to kind of be optimistic about it and know that he is a more compatible piece for Tatum and for Jalen Brown. He's a, just a better fit and a superior player. So, like, even though the money is what the money is, if you're trying to win the title, like, you don't take Terry Rozier and Terry Rozier's contract. Like, you just don't do it. And, I mean... The reason why the Celtics are struggling so much in part is because, yes, they do not have Kemba Walker, who was a huge part of their offense last season, but they also do not have Gordon Hayward. And that, you know, that is not an excuse at all. That's just a reality. And, you know, they'll eventually, right now, just their statistical numbers across the board, there's some really weird stuff going on, but there's some weird stuff happening all throughout the NBA. Like, you know, the Celtics losing to Detroit is not what you want if you're a Celtics fan, but like the Nets, who are very good, have lost to the Hornets and lost to the Wizards. Yeah, no, we're, we're still in the preseason right now. I mean, I refuse yeah. to even acknowledge some of these results because they're so wonky and ridiculous. I think for me, Boston was kind of a five player team last year, especially when Hayward got injured. That five man group was rock solid. 
And the thing is, when you're getting a group that's kind of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, like that Celtics lineup was with Kemba, Smart, Brown, Tatum, and Tice, if you remove mm-hmm. one piece from that group and replace them with Jeff Teague, <laughs> the whole thing is going to look a lot different. It's just not going to function nearly as well. And I think that their depth is being challenged in ways maybe they didn't expect uh, because you know, Hayward did leave. So it's not just that Kemba's this amazing player when he's healthy. It's just about the the impact within you know, uh, the responsibilities that guys have to take on in terms of who's doing the ball handling, who's doing the setup, who's doing drive and kick stuff, all that, uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of changed the nature of how Boston gets things done. So I think on the plus side for the Celtics, you're getting to see what can Jalen do with a much greener light. You're getting to see, you know, Tatum continue to progress forward. Um, and you'd like to see that, um, you know, in this interim period, but it's difficult to overreact too much. Uh, unless you know the, the news comes back on Kemba and it's worse and his, his timeline's getting extended and he's not back on the court, you know then we have to stop giving them a pass. But you know, there's been a bunch of teams, Michael, uh, Boston, Miami, uh, Brooklyn, who you mentioned, and Toronto, who have all not really lived up to expectations so far from a record standpoint anyway to start the season in the Eastern Conference, where there, there are teams that we kind of all penciled in as top-tier Eastern Conference teams that just haven't been there quite yet. From that group, is there a team that you're really concerned about more so than Boston? Or or maybe it's multiple teams that you're concerned about more so than Boston? Or how would you say they fit into this mix of Eastern Conference disappointments? I mean, I'm not like, I, I just wouldn't use the word panic to describe the situation that any team that's good and that we expect it to be good finds themselves in right now but i'm panicking about the raptors i'll be honest i'm not i'm not afraid to say it i was literally about to say the one team and the one situation that gives me pause a little bit is the raptors because you're in big trouble if pascal siakam just isn't providing value on his max contract and will not provide value going forward right now he's averaging 16 points a game he's sulking when he doesn't get calls He's already been suspended by the organization for bizarrely walking off the floor after he fouled out. He fouled um, out with eight minutes to go in like a game shortly after that suspension, Michael. Right. And so like dating back to the bubble where he was really bad, I just, you know, uh, I look at Raptors Twitter and the only explanation that people have is that, you know, he's in, he's in his own head right now. And, you know, when shots start falling, everything will open up for him. Maybe that's the case. You know, we're recording this on a Monday and the Celtics play the Raptors tonight. Like, it's not oh, perfect. impossible. So he's going to hit impossible. six threes tonight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Amazing. No, I mean, that, that's not impossible. Like, as you know, you're, you're a big Pascal guy, um, super talented player who was an all-star last season and he got the max contract and he's one of the better defenders at his position. Um, but like if he isn't that guy and he's just clearly a, a number two and like what we saw last season was an aberration and, uh, he really needs someone like a Kawhi Leonard on his, on his team to excel on a permanent basis, then the Raptors are just like screwed. I don't know what they do there. I mean, they're already not a championship contender, how they're constructed, but I just don't know what their path is going forward because that would be the guy that also that you need to kind of move on from and and get some assets for uh, at some point. And if his value is this low, I just don't know what they do. 
Yeah, let me just clarify. I mean, last year I went racing on the Pascal Siakam bandwagon, and I just want to make it clear I'm I'm slowly stepping away from the bandwagon, and I'm I'm not trying to you know bring too much attention to myself or kind of fleeing. At the same time, I'm trying to establish an appropriate social distance between myself and the Pascal bandwagon because it's been so rough since the bubble. I tried to give him a pass almost the whole way through the bubble. I was glad that he took accountability at the end of it because it was just pretty brutal to watch. And it's also possible his shot just wasn't ever going to be as good as it was during that hot year last year, right? I mean, he's not particularly young. He is, you know, in his deep into his mid-20s. Um, his mechanics were never really that great. I mean, definitely improved at times. Um, but if he just can't shoot the ball from the outside, which is definitely possible kind of going forward, guys will have a hot stretch for four months and then just kind of revert back to who they were as players prior to that. Um, it totally changes who he is as an offensive guy and, and his overall value. And the confidence aspect is the craziest part because, you know, there was he was grooving at the start of last season. And that grooving we have not seen whatsoever. It's been completely the opposite. It's almost like he feels like he's a role player now on offense when he's out there. He just doesn't trust anything. The decision-making has been bad. He's off balance. He's making turnovers. He's kind of doing everything wrong. So, you know, I don't know if there's something going on off the court where that's kind of influencing how he's playing. I don't know if it's just, you know, all the weird changes this season have gotten to him in a way that maybe they're not impacting all, you know everybody, but he's reaching the point where it's time to step up. I mean, it's it's getting pretty serious for them and it absolutely has dire implications because he's also in a way like one of their best trade chips, right? Like if you wanted to go out there and make a, a James Harden deal, if you wanted to swing for the fences like Masai likes to do, that's where that conversation starts probably. And that's not going to happen. I mean, it, you know, uh, the Rockets got to be watching Pascal Siakam saying, wow, I'd rather have the Karis LeVert package. <laughs> like I'd rather have like any of these other deals that people have been mentioning rather than that. So that's pretty tough. Hey, we got a question from Thaddeus on the same subject, uh, MVP listener. He says, the Nuggets and Raptors have both struggled out of the gate. It turns out that Siakam's already 26 years old and maybe he's better suited for a co-number two role like he had on that title team in 2019. Or maybe he's just a very good number three guy. Meanwhile, the Nuggets have some Will Barton, uh, Michael Porter Jr. minutes issues and they can't defend anybody. How about a swap with the principal pieces being Siakam to Denver and Michael Porter Jr. to Toronto? The money works out so that Gary Harris has to be involved too. Does Michael Porter Jr. have enough juice for Denver to get another asset back in that swap? So he's essentially trying to form a deal between those two teams with the idea that, hey, Toronto's got to start building for the future. Maybe Michael Porter Jr. has the opportunity to be a centerpiece um, in Toronto for what they're trying to do. And maybe Siakam's better used as a number three guy to support players like Jokic and Jamal Murray rather than trying to carry an offense himself. Do you think either team would would give the thumbs up to this deal, Michael? And, And who says no? So, like, as much sense as this makes on paper, I just don't see why either team actually does it. As Thaddeus points out, to make the money work, you know, the Nuggets would have to include significant salary because Michael Porter Jr. only makes $3.5 million. So that's Gary Harris and another player. So Gary Harris and Paul Millsap or Will Barton and Jermichael Green. Um Denver's just, like, not doing that. Like, that's a lot of depth. Depth is really important for them, and they are thin in some certain spots as it is. Um, For the Raptors, you know, Pascal Siakam, even after we've just trashed him for—I don't want to say trash. We we fairly criticized him 
uh, for his poor play so far and his substandard play in the bubble. But, like, the Raptors take a significant step backwards, and they full-on are entering a rebuild around Michael Porter Jr., OG Ananobi, and Fred Van Vliet. I don't know what their path to a title is um, looking like that. And, you know, you're giving up one of the best defenders at his position for one of the worst defenders that size that I think I've ever seen in Michael Porter Jr. And without Kyle Lowry next year, potentially, he's a free agent this summer, like, they would just fall off a cliff. And I don't, like, you know, Masai Ujiri is not under contract for a very long time. I could see him abandoning ship as well if that were an actual trade that, that went down because I just don't know what, how you're going to reach the championship. And that's kind of what the expectations are for that organization right now. You were describing Michael Porter Jr.'s defense like you're a museum curator. You're like, this is some of the worst defense <laughs> that we've ever seen in the world. And, um, yeah, I here's the thing. If I was Toronto, um, I would not do it because I, I personally don't – I'm not a Michael Porter Jr. believer. I know he's an incredible scorer, but if you're saying can't he be like so good at scoring and so good at playmaking that he can make up for his defense and lead a really efficient offense to you know big success – I say no, and part of the problem is I don't really trust him as a playmaker. I think he's a guy who gets his own and doesn't necessarily set up his teammates very well. I don't see a ton of vision from him, and so if I'm trying to build an offense around him, I just don't think it's really going anywhere. People rightfully harp on the defensive stuff because it's a disaster, but it's the playmaking for his teammates and making his teammates better stuff that I actually question more when you're talking about mm. you know what is his ceiling? Point. What's his ceiling? Like as a player, right? I mean, he's never going to be that multi-dimensional threat, I don't think. I think he's going to be an incredible individual scorer, but those guys don't usually take you very far. If I was Denver, Michael, I would do it because I would try to buy low on Siakam. He's a natural third fit. He gives you a lot of what you need. You can take a lot of the pressure off of him from an offensive standpoint, and you just hope the change of scenery gets him back to who he was. Um, you know, The contracts part does make it worse. I would not be worried at all about trading a Paul Millsap contract into that deal or whatever else it might be. I would, uh, I would race at the opportunity to have a quality and reliable defensive piece to add to that mix because it's missing right now. That being said, I don't know if we want to race to write off the Denver Nuggets. They were very impressive closing out Minnesota last night. Jokic was, you know, had his groove going. Um, another triple double, of course, and just, you know, it was takeover mode. So I, I'm still viewing them as a, you know, kind of you know, shark beneath the surface of the water right now. And I think they're going to be a factor this season, even if they don't make any trades. All right, here comes a question about the Raptors from Elliot. He says, from where we sit right now, is it possible that Toronto was the best basketball decision that Kawhi could have made after winning the 2019 title? So instead of instead of going to the Clippers and teaming up uh, with Paul George, he decides to stay in Toronto, run it back, and have a shot at the 2020 title. Is it possible that if he'd stayed, Toronto would have been the favorite to win the finals last year and this year as well? Michael, so what do you think in his alternate reality where Kawhi just does not care about home, it does not care about temperature, it does not care about... Uh, the one million backpacks that Steve Ballmer bought him doesn't care about anything except for trying to win a title. Would Toronto have been the best home? Hmm. Last season, I could definitely see the Toronto Raptors winning the title if Kawhi never left, for sure. Um, it's not like they stormed through the playoffs in 2019. You know, there were some marginal breaks here. The ball in Game 7 against the Sixers that bounced around 15 times before going in. But you bring that group back 
uh, again in 2020. The continuity would be there. The confidence would be there. I mean, the Raptors without Kawhi were like exceptional throughout the regular season, and they already had all these myriad injuries up and down their roster, and it didn't seem to bother them at all. They were so confident and so sure of what they were. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you add Kawhi to that group, like I could totally see that team winning the championship um, coming out of the Eastern Conference, and I, I would say that team would be better than the Celtics. That team would have been better than the Miami Heat. Uh, that team would have been better than the Milwaukee Bucks. Like That team would have been really, really difficult to defeat uh, four times in seven tries. So, yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I don't know about this year, though. It's just a kind of a different – I mean – there's too many hypotheticals swarming around in my brain for me to even calculate how good the Raptors would have been if uh, they kept Kawhi for this season as well. But uh, but last year, yeah, they would have been terrific. Yeah, if he didn't like uh, Toronto, how's he like in Tampa? That's my question for this year. Um, <laughs> I think there's a trick answer to this question that Elliot is not taking into account. I think the best chance from a pure basketball standpoint for him to win a title last year was to join the Lakers, which nearly happened. You know, well, I mean, it was one of his Boo. his finalists. Look, they won the title without him. They're definitely going to win the title with them, Michael. And it would have been a really dreary season where we're all like, God, super teams suck. I think that probably would have been the prevailing narrative around the league. But that would have been the answer um, if he was going from purely a basketball standpoint. I'm glad he didn't. I'm glad he wanted to have his own show with the Clippers. It didn't work out great for them, but they're back for round two. And that brings me to what you teased a little bit earlier, Michael, which is it's time for some accountability for Kawhi Leonard. I don't know if you saw what's been going on this week. He has not been playing well. They built a gigantic lead against the Phoenix Suns uh, on Sunday night, nearly blew the entire thing. Down the stretch, Kawhi misses four jumpers in a row, never really gets within 12 feet of the basket. Paul George and Nicholas Batum have to bail Kawhi Leonard out. Otherwise, they were going to blow that game as, as Phoenix mounted a big-time comeback. It was a real sigh of relief moment for the Clippers. Every time they blow a lead, you know, they're going to have their playoff failures in the back of their mind. And so I think, uh, you know, from that standpoint, I want to put the question to you again, Michael, which is what's Kawhi's role in all of this? How are you feeling about Kawhi, you know, right now at this point of his career? And you're talking about a contract decision with Steph Curry and all that going forward for Golden State. If you're the Clippers and you're not getting peak Kawhi every single night, which they're not, it's been up and down and he was not there every single night during the playoffs. Now you're facing a decision about a five-year contract that you're going to have to give him, you know, this summer. How are you feeling, you know, comfort-wise about giving a player like Kawhi Leonard a five-year max contract? I know most people would say, oh, you just have to give it to him. And you do, 100%. He's going to get a max contract. But how would you be feeling giving it out? I don't think it's this great feeling of celebration like it was when they landed him in free agency. Isn't there a little bit of gritted teeth, sort of like we, we felt with the Paul George deal as well? I'm not there with you on that like on a one to ten scale of confidence in giving him that deal i would be at a 10 like what full, full stop oh um, my god michael i've got to find something i could sell you with this attitude god i gotta make money uh, off this guy come on let's grift him. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's so. take let's take michael to the bank come on okay so uh, Kawhi has played five games this season i watched that phoenix suns game I mean, like, three of them came after he basically broke his face, and he's been wearing this ridiculous mask, and he's fiddling with the mask throughout the entire game. Like, 
He's getting to his spots fine. He's moving great. He got to the line 10 times against the Suns. Uh, he's averaging career-high figures in assists. He had 20, 16, and 9 against Utah the other night in a loss where he shot the ball fine. I mean, he looks like he looks like Kawhi Leonard to me. I mean, he missed a few jumpers. One of them went halfway in the rim and out. A couple of them were, were long off the back rim. Like, he's fine. Like, it, you know, it's just such a small sample size. I still think that he's one of the three best players in the world. I would have no hesitation whatsoever in, in giving him whatever he wanted. Uh, part of that is because I have no other choice if I'm the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, but no, well, I'd be really that, confident that's what I'm getting in, at. in having I mean, him lead the way. That's what I'm getting at. They have no other choice. Like They've made their bet, and they would love to be able to sign him to that contract because if he leaves, they're completely up a creek. But it almost feels to me it's a little bit like a supersized version of the Blake Griffin deal when they when they signed him, right? There was the health concerns oh, lingering no. around Blake Griffin. Hey, look, they were excited to be able to re-sign Blake, and that was kind of unexpectedly a little bit of a free agency derby, man. Uh, you know, other teams trying to get into the mix. Are they going to be able to keep him? When you're an organization that's never won it, never even reached the conference finals, like you do feel a level of pressure to keep your guys. And so when you do it and you have that star face, you know, you're excited to do it. With Kawhi, look, he's 29 now. This Whatever that next contract is going to run through basically his age 34, age 35 season, how many of those years do you think he's going to be performing at an all-NBA level? I mean, everything he does now is from 12 feet and out. When does he ever attack the basket? You talk about him getting to his spots. What if his spots were better spots, Michael? That might be helpful. I mean, he does get to the basket. Uh, he attempted 10 free throws against Phoenix, uh, just going right at uh, DeAndre Ayton. Um, I mean, he's a th- triple-level threat, like behind the three-point line, mid-range, at the basket, uh, super efficient. He's making plays for other guys. I, I mean, the the Blake Griffin comparison, come on. I know you're being hyperbolic there, Ben. No, I, I'm not comparing them as players. Obviously, he's always been a better player than Blake Griffin. I think there's a similar dynamic when you're signing a guy to a long-term contract late in his 20s where he's had established injury issues and he's showing signs of physical regression. You're not telling me that Kawhi is the same guy he was two or three years ago. I mean, he's not making nearly as many impact defensive plays on a game-to-game basis now than he did back in the San Antonio days. Not even close. And it's because he has to carry this heavier burden on offense, but he's not getting to the foul line 10 times like he did against Phoenix every single night. That's just not who he is as a player. And I think that you know he's smart about how he manages the load, but my question is, can he turn it back up when it matters in the playoffs. And he didn't against Denver. You look at two of those four losses against Denver, they were both his fault, right? And so, I, I mean, look, I'm expecting this to get worse for Kawhi, not necessarily better. Like, I feel like his best years are probably behind him, or if not, he's right in the middle of them right now. And it's just a huge contract to be carrying when you've already paid Paul George. It's going to limit who you are as an organization. I'm not saying that their title window was closed, but I I would be gulping if I had to give that Kawhi Leonard deal, and I wouldn't have said that you know when they first signed him in uh, two years ago. I would have said, well, give him whatever he wants, but I don't think the last year and a half has played out very well for him. Well, this is fascinating just because it kind of speaks to the dilemma that organizations have when they have a player who's so talented and in their prime, but looking for that next contract. I mean, this goes back to. Um, the Steph Curry conversation at the very top of our our episode a little bit. Um, But, like, you know, 
your question of whether or not Kawhi would be um, or how long Kawhi could be really effective on that contract is like, yeah, players who are in their mid thirties are probably not worth $50 million. That's just not what it is. Their their production's not going to be there unless you're LeBron James. So if Kawhi Leonard is LeBron James, then sure. I feel great about it. He's probably not going to look that way when he's 35 years old, but that's just like what it is in with everybody. So I don't really know what to do about that beyond offering him three years and hoping he doesn't get upset, but he will. So you got to offer the five and that's just what it is. But like, I, I think I'm a little higher on him and a little bit more optimistic about what he still has to offer. And I don't see precipitous decline in his game um, as much as you do, particularly on the defensive end where I still think he's an all defensive player. Uh, so really, so yeah, yeah. So that's basically kind of where I am with Kawhi. I still love him very, very much. All right, Michael, we're going to have to agree to disagree on Kawhi Leonard. I'm seeing the slippage, man. I'm seeing it night to night. Not the same guy, but we'll see. All right. One other pet, pet project of mine has been the Brooklyn Nets clutch offense. And, you know, you pointed out the, the ugly numbers the last time we talked. It happened again, Michael. On Sunday night, they get themselves into a one-possession game late. Kyrie Irving comes flying up the court, down one doesn't consider any other option, just gets himself into a hero ball, step back, three-pointer, contested, misses, the ball rattles around, it comes back to Durant. He gets himself another clean look at a mid-range jumper for uh, the second time, basically in a week after he missed that one in Charlotte. He winds up missing it, and Brooklyn goes down again. I believe they're below 500 as we're taping this podcast on Monday. Are you with me, Michael? Was my New Year's resolution that Steve Nash needs to step up and figure this thing out already proving 100% true? Did you see that end game? What did you make of it? This reminds me a little bit of uh, Chris Paul being complimented about OKC's crunch time offense last year. And he's like, all that means is we're in a bunch of close games. Like, I'm not too concerned with the crunch time offense so much as I am with how they played to get into crunch time against the Washington Wizards. And a lot of that is just really bad defense. And so that when I look at the Brooklyn Nets and I'm concerned about anything that, uh, you know, is in their profile, it's that end of the floor. Like they were flabbergasted by like Bradley Beal is terrific. I love him so much, but they were flabbergasted and made it, they were treating him like Steph Curry. You had Kyrie Irving and Karis LeVert just, you know, in situations where they're supposed to switch, they're going with Bradley Beal, giving wide open threes to Davis Bertans and other guys like Rui Hachimura dominated on the boards and in the posts. That's just, I don't know, that was kind of just jarring to see. So like the crunch time offense has not looked superb, but if Kevin Durant makes two really makeable shots against the Wizards and the Hornets, like, are we really that concerned about it? What do you, what do you think? Well, I am, yes, because he's not getting the ball nearly (laughs) enough. He's getting looked off by Kyrie. Man, it's crazy. You can't have one of the greatest scorers in NBA history and not even give him touches on key late-game possessions. And even if you have one of the other best shot creators in the entire league or in the modern era with Kyrie Irving, there's got to be more involvement from Kevin Durant. So I was upset about it after they scored almost 150 points against Atlanta in a win. So you darn right I'm going to be upset about it after they drop some games to teams they have no business losing to. On your point about the defense, can we have a reckoning about Jared Allen? I feel like a lot of people on NBA Twitter really like him. I like him a lot more than DeAndre Jordan, so I'm glad he's playing kind of the crucial Uh minutes for Brooklyn. 
Is he actually that good, though? I mean, really? Uh, I feel like he's a good shot blocker around the basket. Beyond that, from a defensive standpoint, is he great? Is he great? Uh, No. (laughs) He is not great. So why does he get Uh, so much love from the internet? Is it strictly because he's not DeAndre Jordan? I think maybe that's a little bit of it. Okay, I mean, look, fine. he's like a fair enough. He's a, no, but he's a really good. He's a really good rim protector. He he just like provides what they need. And I'm not sure really he does. Can I can I push back? I'm not sure that he does though, because I think he's not. The, I'm going to say this politely. He's not the most physical presence on mm-hmm. the glass or in the paint. And I feel like rebounding is a major issue for these guys when KD is playing the four. And he's not playing in like a playoff level of intensity. You know, he's not necessarily like back there trying to clear the glass and like man down and box guys out and, you know, own the glass. And so a lot of that responsibility falls to Allen. And I feel like he's, I mean, he is so tall and like, but he's just kind of a vertical player where you you can get under him, you can box him out, you can move him. He doesn't have the greatest like lower body strength. So I don't want to say, like, he's the only guy who's even trying for rebounds sometimes. I don't want to blame him completely. But, like, he's kind of a, a, a problem when it comes to, you know, their rebounding uh, woes. I mean, there are some centers out there who is just like, you just need one guy and he'll handle the defensive glass and you're good. I just don't think that's him as a player. No, I mean, like, you know, their rebounding numbers when he's on the floor are atrocious. They're defensive rebounding numbers, you know, like they're allowing a rate that would just be like if the other team was five Tristan Thompsons. Like, that's not great if you are the Brooklyn Nets. So I see your point there. Well, and I and, think the problem is that guys like Kyrie and KD are going to hear that and they're going to say, well, Jarrett, you got to step up. And it's like, well, I mean, he's the only guy trying, so it's not completely his fault, but they're asking him to do a little bit more than he's capable of and it's and it's hurting them i guess is my point yeah i just really appreciated that moment in the uh in the wizards game i think it was right at the end of either the second quarter or the third quarter where kyrie inbounded the ball to a washington wizard and then he went over to jared allen and blame Jared Allen for not being in the right spot when the I don't know do you, do you did you watch the game do you know what exa- what play I'm talking about because it's very comical I don't remember that play specifically but I do feel like that is his role on this team and <laughs> more power to him just like he is going to be the guy who gets blamed for absolutely everything and that's rough. the Mario Chalmers yeah Yes, yeah, he's the tallest Mario Chalmers we've ever seen um and look I'm actually kind of guilty of it right now but I think that basketball Twitter just loves him and thinks like he's like a rock solid center. I think he's still a question for them. I think like I think the fi- like yeah, I it's this is a really just an interesting thing to talk about because they don't even play Jared Allen or DeAndre Jordan in these crunch time minutes. Like it's Jeff Green at the 5 and then the the Nets are just getting like pummeled on drives and pummeled on the glass. And so I don't know if that's Jared Allen's fault. I don't know if it's just like maybe we need to prioritize defense a little bit more as a collective, as you were saying. Um, but but yeah, like 
his role is just so restricted on a team like this. I mean, like, you know, you flash back to a couple of years ago or even last season early on when it was like, oh, Jared Allen's going to be taking corner threes now. And he's made like 10 in a row at practice. That That's like what is being talked about in Brooklyn where I live and I would go to the practices. But like, that's just not what it is anymore. Now it's you need to rebound. You need to be this physical presence. I think he has been okay on the glass. I think he is a very good and competent rim protector. And that's what they need. But yeah, sure, he could be a little bit better, for sure. Well, your point on the small ball lineup is excellent because, I mean, Jeff Green is not a defensive five, right? I mean, we saw like Washington just kind of get whatever the heck they wanted late in that game going towards the basket. And so that's an issue, which is, and that's kind of why I go back to playing and optimizing your late game offense being so critical to this Brooklyn Nets team. If they want to go small late, which is a defensible strategy, but we know they can't defend that well small late then they've got to be awesome with their small lineups on offense late and that means Mm -hmm. incorporating their best offensive weapon much more consistently than they are currently so this to me goes back to a coaching issue like you're going to have to find a way to get Kyrie to not just you know see red every single time he's got that basketball and want to go be the hero every single night because Katie's not touching the ball regularly in these games and it is going to bite them like it absolutely will and I don't know if if the answer is to close big, so you've got a little bit, you know, uh, you know, mar- margin for error there on the offensive end. I I tend to like the the concept of their small lineup if they could defend a little bit better. Maybe there's a guy they can go out and yeah. grab to plug into that Jeff Green role who could put up a little bit more resistance. I mean, that would be awesome. But uh, you know, right now, I mean, they're they're losing close games, and I don't think they're losing them by accident. All right, last question here, Michael it comes in from Ali. Uh, our big-time Pistons fan. He says, based on the small sample size we've seen during these first few games, other than the string of anxiety attacks and heart palpitation that the Pistons have given me, I'm starting to realize that the problem with this team may not be what everybody initially thought it was after the offseason. Maybe the reason that Detroit is only 1-5 is because of the main man himself, Blake Griffin. Now, I'm well aware that almost everybody is in support of the fact that Griffin should be traded, but that's mainly due to his contract. But most can agree that when he's healthy, he still has been able to play at an all-star level, at least until this year. But I sincerely believe that if it were not for Griffin, the Pistons would be at least 3-3 three and three on the season. Our over-reliance on Blake Griffin is hurting us, and his performance is rendering him highly ineffective on both sides of the floor. But in many other aspects, I've actually been quite satisfied with the rest of the team so far. So it's an interesting email from Ollie. Look, Detroit's bad. They've got a lot of things going wrong. But Blake Griffin does figure pretty prominently into what's going wrong, right? I mean, he could, like I said earlier, barely stay on his feet against Tatum on the on the crucial possession. I understand he's not particularly moving very well. I saw someone describe him almost as a guy who just runs three-point line to three-point line now. Michael, what are you seeing from Blake Griffin? I mean, he just looks like a different player from the guy who we've seen over the past decade or so. Um, he's making, you know, I think Blake, Blake's basketball intelligence is really underrated and he's not even making particularly, um, insightful reads anymore or decisions that one would make who is smart at basketball. Um, you know, he's missed two games so far. He's, he's perennially injured and hobbled and, 
physically just not the same player. It is it is super jarring though to see him shoot 16 threes in a game, shoot 10 threes in a game against the Celtics in 29 minutes. Like the three-point rate is 64.7 right now and that is just like Duncan Robinson almost like not that it's not that crazy but it, it is it is absurd for him to be shooting this many threes honestly and some of that is because of how Troy Weaver put this roster together and the bigs that he signed and you know when Blake's out there with someone like Isaiah Stewart or Mason Plumley or Jaleel Okafor he's got to shoot he's got a space that's what it is that's it's it's critical for him and he can't really play the five because of the defensive concerns as you pointed out when Tatum just completely dusted him on that last possession so like the days of him being an all-star are I mean I don't want to overreact over a four game sample size but from what I've seen so far I would be shocked if he ever made another all-star team I guess is how I'll put it very well said I completely agree on that it is sad, you know. I mean, we're not that far removed from Blake Griffin being absolutely incredible uh, from a physical standpoint, and he's not that guy now. The fact that he's essentially a one-dimensional player at that price point is really, really rough. No winning team can kind of sustain that. I think you're completely right that some of it's by necessity from a, a roster standpoint where he, somebody has to space the court there. If it's not going to be Jeremy Grant and it's not going to be the five, then by default, it has to be Blake Griffin. But even if he was in a role where they were like, hey, we're trying to run everything through you as a point forward and you know, really leaning on him heavily and his athleticism, I'm not sure his body is ready to respond at this point, unfortunately. So I think they're kind of stuck. I don't think there's going to be any trade interest in him. Like, you know, the, the first couple of weeks have only hurt what was already a difficult situation from that standpoint. So I think the, the possible adjustment is, is what Ali's hinting at, which is Dwayne Casey phases him out from big minutes at some point here as the season unfolds, right? You just kind of reduce his workload, get him into a more comfortable spot um, and play the younger guys a little bit more and, and just see what they can do. Whether or not that returns wins, uh, you know, a guy like Ali is going to hope it does. It might not. But I think from the big picture standpoint, is Blake a priority for this organization anymore? Even if he, he can't be traded? Like, I, I feel like he's going to start to go to the back burner here pretty soon, don't you? Yeah, it might be a little bit too early for that just because, um, you know, the NBA is like a political body and you don't want to make anyone too unhappy, like benching Blake Griffin when he has, you know, he's due 36 and a half million this season. He has a $38.9 million player option for next season that he's almost definitely going to opt in to. And so you're stuck with this guy for the foreseeable future. As you said, his trade value is kaput right now. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really tricky situation. And I mean, like Detroit, I I guess what I'm getting at is he's playing 32 minutes a night right now. Right. Yeah. Um, and at his peak, he was all the way up to like 36, actually really early in his career, he played uh, 38 minutes a night as a rookie, which is pretty crazy to think about, but you know, you could take 32 and you can get that to 26 and he still starts. Right. Um, maybe you take it to 25. Like there's ways that you can kind of massage it where you limit his impact. If you're losing, you know, late in games, you're sitting in for the the entire stretch. Um, I mean, there's different ways you can kind of get around it. So you're not keeping him in a centerpiece role. That's not working for anybody, I guess. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, I'm actually just looking now at the usage rankings for uh, the Detroit Pistons this season, guess where Blake ranks on their team in usage rate? 
Wow, interesting. Maybe third? Sixth. What? Who's Sixth. A, who's well, above him? I, I will say one player above him has only played 21 minutes, so we'll say fifth, and that is absolutely atrocious. Like, number one is Derek Rose, Josh Jackson, Jeremy Grant, uh, Wayne Ellington only played 21 minutes, and then Svi, my, <laughs> I don't even want to try. Mikhailik. Um, Svi Mikhailik. Yes. Mikhailik Jordan you. to the Lakers fans. Well, yes, here's, here's the you. thing. I appreciate that. <laughs> here's the thing with uh, that list, though. I mean, that just tells you how you have a lot of guys who don't like to pass the basketball on that team, right? It's not that they're, they're taking 10 shots a game. It's that they pass the ball zero times, and they, it throws off their mm-hmm. usage rate. 100%. Well, we had nothing but bad news for Ali on that question, Michael. Um, so congratulations. Your team is full of a bunch of selfish gunners. Blake needs to see his minutes cut. You're probably still not going to win any games. So what a rosy prediction from us for the Pistons. But he did have one final question, Michael, and you're in position to offer a great answer to it. Ali wants to know, do you have any advice for a college student who is seeking a potential career in sports journalism? Michael? Now that you're at the esteemed Sports Illustrated, uh, soon to be penning cover stories, I imagine, you know, month after month, um, what do you have to say to Ali? Well, um, a lot has changed. I don't want to age myself, but a lot has changed in this industry since I graduated from college. I would say uh, read as much as you can, write as much as you can, and try to uh, network as best as possible with people in the industry. So if you want to shoot me or Ben an email and maybe hop on the phone and get a little bit more detailed. Um, Michael, Michael, my to... advice is never give out your colleagues' phone numbers. <laughs> Jeez, what's happening here, Michael? Come on, what are you signing me up here for? Man, I know Christmas was like last <laughs> week, but be in the spirit of generosity, Ben. Come Look, on. I, I'm joking. I, I, I try to help out as much as I possibly can. Um, so you're, you're saying networking is key. What else? Yeah, I, I mean, know what it is. I, I, would like, I would say have a targeted idea of what you really want to do. Um, for me, it was always the NBA as opposed to just any other sport. I knew that that was the, the league that I wanted to cover professionally. So I became as much of a um, expert, quote unquote, on the topic as I could uh, and studied, you know, um, uh, read books about that. <laughs> I don't know. It's really, it's really tough to, to kind of uh, gauge like specific advice here because of just how different this industry is um, now as opposed to when I was really looking for work um, out of college. But Ben, do you have any wonderful advice for our, our beautiful listener? So you're going to give my phone number out and then just pass the buck completely. I mean, just unbelievable. Uh, great mentorship here from you, Michael. <laughs> uh, look, my advice is uh, you know, usually pretty straightforward. I think when I was first starting, I asked this exact same question to a guy named Ryan White at the Oregonian, and his answer was, you don't want to do this. You just don't do it. Don't become a sports writer. It's not worth it. You don't make enough money. This is a really stressful job. Everybody's going to hate you. You don't want to do it. And it was essentially a, a litmus test, Michael. He wanted to make sure that I was like, no, 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 no. I really, really want to do it. So, Ali, I'm going to say the same thing to you. You don't want to be a sports journalist. And if you're if you're going to come back at me and say, yes, I do. I absolutely do. This is my driving passion in life. This is the only vision for my future that I can see, then you're off on the right foot. If you're like, well, no, you know, actually, maybe I could do X, Y, Z. 
then it might not be worth it because this has been a very challenging industry in terms of from a hiring standpoint, what it takes to you know keep a long-term job, what it takes to kind of rise through the ranks, um, how the financial models are now with uh, you know relying a lot on either unpaid or underpaid you know riding positions. It's just a very difficult uh, place to break in. So I would say um, number one, do a self-assessment. Is this really your driving passion? Do you absolutely have to do this? If so, great. But be ready to commit the next 10, 15 years of your life to it. It's it's not like as difficult as going to a medical school, but you know it's going to require you know around the clock commitment. I, I think from there, I would say make sure you're writing every single day. Get yourself into that routine, that habit. Make sure you're putting it out into the world uh, so that people can give you feedback. Keep yourself accountable from that standpoint, just so you get into the rhythm of what it would be like to have that job. Uh, Michael's right, you know, find yourself uh, an area of expertise that you want to focus on and, and devote your time and energy to becoming as completely well-rounded on that subject material as you possibly can be, whether that's reading, listening, writing, and all of the above. And then my biggest one, it's very difficult right now because of the coronavirus pandemic, but try to get your foot in the door, whatever you can do to get a credential, to start networking face-to-face, to attend games in person, to get a feel for what the mechanics of the job are like. You know, when I was first uh, coming up, I had a day job unrelated to writing. So I would clock into the day job at 8 a.m. I would clock out at 5 p.m. or so. I would race down to the, the Moda Center in Portland and I would get there, you know, usually like six or, or 6.30 and I'd, you know, be writing until 3 a.m., turn around and do it again the next night that's a grind. You know, I did that for multiple years. And so make sure you're, you're getting yourself into that kind of a situation. So you, you really know what that life is going to be like. And you're getting yourself, you know, some FaceTime with people who are going to, uh, you know, potentially be around and, and, you know, a part of the league for five, 10, 15 years. And you'll be surprised. I mean, like once you're in, you're going to see those same faces that you saw back in, in 2007, they're going to still be there in, in 2021. So I think, um, you know, wait until this pandemic clears, try to get yourself a credential for any outlet that will get credentialed, uh, you know, by your local team, get yourself in the building, get a taste for what it's like, you know, filing on deadline, uh, turning stories around quickly, you know, making sure you, you don't have too many typos and, and you're getting that stuff up online. If you're able to do those kinds of things and you still like it and the passion's still burning strong, then you're off. But, uh, you know, I would say, uh, you know, it's, it's tougher than it looks. Hopefully, Michael and I make it look like somewhat of a good time and we try to have fun on this podcast, but uh, it's a very challenging industry and uh, it's not for everybody. Hopefully, I didn't scare him off, Michael. What do you think? No, I. first of all, you're, I knew you, your answer would just blow mine out of the water, so um, I'm glad that you gave such a detailed response. It was great. I was taking notes myself over here at my desk, just trying to fiddle away, just try to be like you as much as I can, Ben. So that was that was terrific. Well, I'll say this, Michael. I mean, I've actually never been on the cover, a cover subject of Sports Illustrated. So if you ever need somebody to write about, you know, I mean, I'm I'm available for interviews. You know, if, if you'd like me to drop some more wisdom, maybe we can, you know, work something out where uh, you know, we could do a photo shoot here. It'd be great. No, for sure. I'm throwing your name in my story ideas Google Doc as we speak. Just don't trade me like Steph Curry. We're going to be fine, Michael. We're going to be just <laughs> fine. All right, guys. We've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. You guys can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Instagram and Twitter 
at Michael V as in Victor. Pina, be, be sure to send him a message of congratulations and let him know you read that Steph Curry article, whether you loved it, you hated it, or maybe somewhere in between. Give Michael a shout out on social media. I know he's gone at least three days without hearing from angry Mavericks fans. So maybe now, Michael, it's time for the angry Warriors fans to come after you. What do you think? I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver, on Twitter at BenGolliver. You guys can always email us, openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. We'll be back later this week with more takes from the opening couple weeks of action. Michael, I'm trying to watch as many games as possible. I'm sure lots of fun stuff will be taking place here in the next couple days. All right, Michael, until then, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.